Welcome to House Calls, where we get to talk to investment bankers from Kane Brothers, a division of Key Bank Capital Markets, Inc. Kane Brothers bankers work in some of the most interesting segments of the healthcare industries. They work with organizations and business models that are helping to change American healthcare for the better. I'm your host, Dave Johnson. I'm also CEO of Foresight Health. I'm a recovering investment banker myself who discovered late in my career that I was always meant to be a journalist. I co-author a monthly thought leadership article with a rotating cast of senior bankers from Kane Brothers. Each piece becomes an exercise in examining a fascinating segment of the dynamic healthcare landscape. The focus of our articles and this podcast is on how to make America's fragmented, inefficient, and often broken healthcare system more integrated, consolidated, efficient, and customer-focused so that it delivers greater value and innovation to the American people. Today, I'll be interviewing John Cairns, a director in Kane Brothers' corporate M&A advisory practice. We'll be talking about what it takes to bring innovative new drugs to market at a time when drug costs can be extremely high, but the payoff can also be transformative for people afflicted by relatively rare conditions or diseases. John joined Kane Brothers in 2015 and has deep expertise in mergers and acquisitions, capital raising, and strategic advisory transactions. He's been instrumental in some notable transactions at Kane with such businesses as Redcard, iCardiac Technologies, Stewart Healthcare System, and Guidewell. He's earned a BA from Kenyon College and an MBA from Fordham. Hey, John, welcome to House Calls, where the bankers are always in. Thanks, Dave. Great to be here. It's wonderful to have you on the show, and we're going to dive into the most interesting topic today of the rise of contract commercialization organizations, CCOs. Uh, but before we do that, why don't we learn a little bit about you and what drew you into healthcare and your particular segment of investment banking? Sure. I got into banking about 10 years ago after business school. Uh, first shop I was at, I was a bit of an M&A generalist, probably spent 50% of my time on healthcare deals just by happenstance. It was an area I had some interest in. I have some family members who worked throughout healthcare. Uh, and as I thought about making a move to another bank and, and coming to Kane, um, a, a big part of the calculus for, for me was uh, I see real value in specialization. Um, uh, as an investment banker, I think to be able to provide good, thoughtful advice to your client, you need to be able to advise them on the complexities of a deal or a transaction, but also have real insights about uh, their subsector uh, and, and their overall industry. Um, and as I looked at healthcare and I thought about kind of making a career longer term in healthcare investment banking, I view it as $3 trillion spent pretty inefficiently. Um, <laughs> That's to say the least. <laughs> yeah. And, and through that, I, I see real opportunity. A lot of the companies we work with uh, in the middle market are um, taking costs out of the system or improving outcomes for patients. Um, I also see just a need for, on the provider side, particularly on the, on the hospital system side, a lot of need for consolidation uh, as, as hospitals need to combine and spread their administrative costs across more patient encounters. There's a lot of tailwinds in the industry. I spent a lot of time across healthcare services, but really have focused more specifically on pharma outsourcing, pharma services over the last uh, four or five years now. Well, great. Thanks, John, for that background. And uh, 
and pharma outsourcing, uh, for those who don't know, is an area of tremendous activity and, and change. Uh, the article we wrote together uh, explores the rise of contract commercial organizations, uh, basically the types of companies that help both small and large drug companies uh, bring drugs to market. Uh, it's a fascinating look, I believe, at the way drug development, drug marketing, and payment are evolving as we move toward a marketplace in which players are reluctant to pay for expensive medications unless they demonstrate superior clinical outcomes. Uh, so let's set up the scenario here, John. Uh, we're talking about some very powerful drugs, potentially curative drugs for um, really debilitating diseases, but they come with, an ex with some exceptionally high price tags. What are some example conditions uh, that these new types of drug drugs, many of them um, gene therapies, uh, what are some conditions that the gene therapies can address and, and have drawn attention and even scrutiny as, as, the mark, as this part of the marketplace unfolds? Cell and gene therapy, uh, very exciting area of pharmaceutical development. Uh, a lot of curative therapies uh, that are being developed or have just recently been commercialized. If you went back two or three years ago, you had one approved uh, cell or gene therapy on the market. Now I think we're, we're approaching about a dozen, um, uh, but a, a number of them have you know, fairly high costs associated with them. So uh, Novartis has a, a new product called uh, Zolgensum or Zolgensma, um, which is, um, it treats spinal muscular atrophy, uh, which is a fatal uh, genetic condition that um, often will kill a, a child by age two if it's untreated. Um, it affects a relatively small population. Um, only one in 10,000 uh, children are afflicted with it. Um, and, and this drug is effective in, in most uh, patients who take it. Uh, it's curative. Uh, but it, it carries with it a, a fairly high price tag at $2.1 million. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it's certainly received a lot of headlines in the popular press, and I think um, Novartis has, has struggled to a certain degree to try to get out there to the market, how, how they thought about pricing, and how, on a relative basis, it's actually a lower cost to the overall uh, healthcare system than the existing drugs that are on the market. But that was a big part of how... They went about, you know, uh, getting payers to buy off on this uh, $2.1 million price tag. One, uh, you don't have to pay if it doesn't work. And two, the, the price is spread out over four or five-year period. You look at that relative to some of the existing protocols on the market that really just treat the symptoms, you could spend 4 or $5 million easily on a patient over a 10-year period where uh, Zolgensma is going to uh, potentially provide a cure for the patient in a single dose. That illustrates uh, very much the challenge that we're addressing. Um, I think 2.1 million is the most uh, any drug manufacturer has ever charged for a drug, but it does appear to, to bring commensurate value. We could probably debate what exactly that constitutes. But boy, you'd think for $2.1 million, they could get a better name for that drug. Um, Agreed. It doesn't roll off the tongue, but <laughs> it is a, a pretty amazing product nonetheless. Yeah. But those features you described, mortgage-like payment mechanisms, um, essentially money-back guarantees or not even money-back guarantees. It's uh, you don't pay if the drug doesn't work. 
are pretty powerful and therefore the, the, the payment is really only going to um, – or for cases where, where the drug really does uh, have a curative impact. And we're going to struggle with this as a society because we're set up to pay a lot of money for treatment, uh, much of which doesn't work or is very costly and, and really doesn't change outcomes. And when we get something like this that's curative, people are appalled by the price tag at some level. Um, but it's also a huge amount of cost avoidance and obviously leads to a dramatically higher quality of life or life at all uh, for the person receiving the treatment. Could you just uh, put these social and economic implications of, of this type of drug into perspective for us? How do we afford them? How do we not afford them? How should we as a, as a society be looking at this? It's a challenging question. Um, we look at um, the overall cost on these drugs. The, the, the headline price uh, can be quite high as we just discussed. But to cure a patient, there's some other cell and gene therapy products out there that will cure uh, childhood blindness for certain gene abnormalities. Um, so some really exciting uh, therapies. Uh, I think the way we need to generally weigh them, I think the framework I use to think about it is, you know, how effective is the product relative to other existing protocols? What's the cost of all the other comorbidities for that patient um, if they aren't cured, if we're just treating their symptoms over a period of, of 10 or 20 years versus the cost of potentially curing them in a single dose of a product? It's a difficult equation, but there are, you know, uh, health economists and market access experts that are out there that are working within pharma and, and also outside pharma that are trying to actually quantify those numbers and, and look at what's the long-term survival cost and you know, what are the potential savings associated with some of these new protocols. Yeah, it's also interesting that most of these, these new breakthrough therapies, particularly the gene-based therapies, are for what uh, the industry terms orphan diseases, uh, diseases that afflict fewer than 200,000 people a year. Um, we don't have the same level of investment going into, uh, I guess, therapies that, that could address broader need, you know, various types of chronic disease and so on. Um, how do you fold that into this equation to um, – sort of the greater good question, if we can devote billions of dollars to solving a very rare disease, how does that stack up against, I guess, directing the same amount of money to something that could have a bigger impact? And as an industry, we really don't have a way to make those types of, of value-based judgments, do we? It's a great question. I mean, you look out and you think about these bigger uh, drug needs, whether it be uh, antibiotic resistance and, and the need to develop new antibiotics, um, you know, heart disease being a, a leading cause of death in most developed nations, and you don't see as many dollars in the drug development pipeline uh, focused on antibiotics and statins. And I think oftentimes this issue of comparative effectiveness is sometimes what's driving pharma. They're Pharma companies are acting rationally. They're looking for areas of growth. In a lot of cases, the new statins that are coming onto the market are marginal improvements over the existing protocols. So if I have a new statin that's going to give me a 
you know, a, a 2% decrease in my cholesterol is that, and, and I want to charge a higher price in the existing protocol. Uh, is the PBM formulary um, going to want to bring me on? Is the payer going to want to pay more for that product? Likely not. Uh, and I think in some ways that, that dynamic is driving drug companies to look for new therapeutic categories where they can make uh, a significant improvement over the drugs that are being used to treat that, uh, that ailment today. And from the the pharma company's perspective, um, orphan and specialty drugs are becoming an increasingly large percentage of the overall drug spend, and uh, they're for-profit companies, and uh, they're going to follow where the, the opportunity leads. And that's a nice way to segue into what the FDA is doing on fast-track drug approvals and how that's accelerating these new types of drugs, uh, gene-based drugs, specialty drugs, into the marketplace. Uh, often or even without the, the, the historical level of, of testing. Uh, could you talk about fast-tracking and, and the implication that's having for the marketplace? Yeah, I, I, you know, I think particularly in, um, in the oncology field where there, there's a real need for, for new therapies, that's caused the FDA to look at different ways to get more drugs to market as quickly as possible. About, you know, almost had 60 new approvals for the FDA, 73% or about 43 of those took some type of, you know, fast track approval process that was granted by the FDA. Definitely something that's moving the needle in terms of uh, drug development, uh, a lot of new and novel therapies. Uh, your comment earlier about orphan drugs, about 60% of the approvals last year were for orphan indications. Uh, and about 30% of those approvals for last year were for first-in-class therapies, uh, representing, you know... Novel therapies. That's right. Yeah. Completely novel for that category. Uh, there may be existing drugs on the market that are treating symptoms, uh, but this is a drug that actually looks to, to cure or significantly improve on, on that disease state. You know, it's, it's very interesting that pharma itself is taking the lead on this discussion of, of creating new payment mechanisms. Uh, uh, the Novartis CEO, uh, Vas Narashiman, has said, we need new economic models to determine exactly how much a cure represents. It, it's noteworthy that they're the ones leading the effort, and it's probably both a mix of uh, desire for better public policy and the reality that society at large is just up in arms against the cost of, of drug therapies and uh, the, the burden that's placing increasingly on regular Americans. So could you maybe talk about what the, what the pharma mindset is? I know we've done some of this already, but, uh, but let's dig into that a bit. Yeah, well, I, this is an area where in a period of, of a lot of partisanship uh, in our political process, a point of bipartisanship is around drug pricing. There's already been a, a, a number of congressional hearings this year on the topic, a lot of them focused on generic uh, products that have seen you know, very big price increases uh, in a short amount of time, uh, whether it be insulin, uh, EpiPens. And I do think in the next 12 to 24 months, we could see some type of legislation impacting that. And I think forward-thinking pharmaceutical companies, whether it be large pharma like Novartis or biotechs, are, are very cognizant of how their drug pricing is going to be viewed. And uh, they're, they're trying to get ahead of that and looking for ways that they can 
offer some value-based contracting um, to the market, uh, whether it be the, the government payers or, or commercial payers. Novartis has a, another interesting product called Entresto that treats congestive heart failure. And part of the reimbursement model there with some payers is looking at future cardiac events that occur after the, the patient starts taking the product, as well as you know, hospital readmissions after they start taking the product and factoring that in uh, to the overall reimbursement price. Uh, fairly innovative model that's, that's looking more broadly at the total cost of the health care system. Congestive heart failure is one of those areas where we tend to spend a lot as a society. So I think it's an innovative model and one that has largely been well-received by payers. Of course, what we, the other thing we know about congestive heart failure is that if people lose weight, exercise, and eat better, they'll, they, can, they can help themselves a lot too. Um. That's right. <laughs> Larger systemic issues you know, driving some of the need for these products. But it, it's interesting to see pharma – uh, take that kind of approach where they're looking a little bit more holistically about their drugs impact to the total healthcare system. Yeah, and and I've interacted enough with leaders of, of pharma companies to know they're they're frustrated, often frustrated by their inability to get payers to move more quickly on uh, therapies they believe offer real curative powers. Uh, and I think that's led to the rise of the CCOs. So let's dig into them a little bit and. Uh, how do they operate? Why is this becoming an outsourcing activity? What does it mean to come up with real-world evidence, the HEOC uh, term, health economics and outcomes research, that often is the sort of crucial metric uh, in determining whether a drug gets – or whether payers uh, pay for a drug or not? So let's, let's dig into that process a little bit. A lot of this revolves around um, aggregating data to support a story about why you, your drug is more effective than the existing protocols on the market. Uh, and you're making an argument both to physicians and providers as well as, uh, as payers and PBMs. Um, and so uh, there's a real need to, to demonstrate through both you know, the collection of real-world evidence as well as uh, clinical data that's in, you know, collected in, throughout the clinical development process uh, to show the comparative effectiveness of that new drug and therapy relative to existing protocols. It's an interesting um, area. We see, you know, health economists, clinicians, statisticians, marketers all coming together to try to, one, gather this data, uh, both from the clinical trial process as well as looking at how are patients reacting to uh, existing therapies in the market and, and bringing that, uh, stitching that all together to tell a story uh, why this drug should be approved to the FDA, but also um, why payers uh, and PBMs uh, should reimburse for it, included in formularies, and why ultimately doctors should prescribe it. The messaging is, is a little bit different to each group, but the collection of uh, all these data sets is really important to telling that story. Well, you, you know, we're, we're, we're stuck between this, this barbell of sorts where we've, we've got a need for drug innovation and paying for it and, and everything that that entails. And at the same time, we don't want the pharma industry to engage in profiteering so uh, generally speaking, uh, some combination of regulatory um, oversight and, and market 
pressures would would hope to uh, kind of keep that balance intact. That's what's so intriguing about these uh, CCOs uh, because they exist largely outside uh, the drug development process. Um, increasingly, companies are are outsourcing this function. Uh, some still keep it in-house in a medical affairs unit. But uh, you know, for that to succeed, for that function to succeed, they really have to develop um, both internal and external credibility and really can't afford to be misleading uh, the way some marketing uh, tends to be misleading. Uh, or, or at least oversell. Uh, why don't you just talk specifically now about CCOs and how they're emerging, and then we'll we'll migrate from that into a discussion of the CCO market. How big is it? How fast is it growing? Who are the big players? What are some interesting companies? How is it consolidating? All of those things. So let's first talk about these companies as they currently exist, why they're coming into being in the way they are, and then uh, talk more broadly about the marketplace. So first, the CCOs themselves. Sure. I guess maybe take a quick step back. If you look at you know the traditional large pharma organization, and you alluded to this, you know medical affairs department, they really sit between the clinical drug development teams and the commercialization, uh, you know, sales and marketing function at, at big pharma, uh, and they're trying to you know uh, be the scientific. Uh, group that really kind of is bridging those two worlds. They're between the scientists and the salesmen, right? Is that that, the- <laughs> exactly right. And they bring more of a scientific lens and most of them, you know, are clinicians or statisticians, uh, some type of scientists, but they're they're helping to to bridge that that world between the the clinical scientists and and the sales and marketing teams. Um, and so fairly natural evolution of what we've seen throughout uh, large pharma the, they tend to outsource more and more of these services over time. Uh, and so, you know, what we've seen with contract research organizations, as well as contract development and manufacturing organizations, the prevalence of outsourcing uh, in both of those categories has continued to grow over time. Um, I think we're still in the early innings for what I would call broadly kind of commercialization services. So that the you know contract commercialization organizations you alluded to, as well as a lot of commercialization you know consultancies and boutiques that that specialize in certain select select aspects uh, of the market. Part of this is a function of the market itself. In 2008, there were 2,000 companies with active drug pipelines. Today, there's 4,000 companies with active drug pipelines. A lot of those uh, new entrants to the market are still relatively small, don't have a whole lot of in-house specialized departments. They look to outsource quite a bit of what they do, uh, whether it be on the manufacturing side, the, the clinical development side, and increasingly on the commercialization front. It's pretty broad spanning in terms of Market access, you know, working with with payers and PBMs to to make a case for uh, why a drug should be on a formulary and, and what kind of reimbursement it should receive. Looking at at distribution hub services around getting your drug into the market. Uh, medical communications, uh, working to craft messages to the to the clinicians and your marketing message out there to the the key opinion leaders in certain therapeutic categories as well as you know, then looking at the more traditional kind of marketing uh, agency work that, that's producing you know, some of the, the, the advertising that goes along with these products. 
Some of this still continues to sit in-house with large pharma, but increasingly we're seeing uh, a large group of companies that are um, that are outsourcing this and and kind of a growing you know field here. Mm, terrific, really interesting. Well, talk to me about some of the companies you like in the space. I think there's, you know, it's, it's very broad and I think it's very fragmented. $150 billion of spend overall for commercialization services, only about 16% of that today is outsourced. So you look at some of the bigger groups, uh, Sineos, which is a large CRO, has a contract commercialization organization uh, as one of their divisions. They're certainly a leader in this field. You've got groups like EDG, Healthcare which has uh, their Ashfield division is very focused on this space. Then you get into some, you know, smaller but very nice growing companies that are uh, owned by private equity today, Eversana, that's focused uh, both on, you know, kind of specialty drug distribution as well as market access. There's groups like Envision Pharma Group uh, that's uh, more of a, a true kind of outsourced MetaFairs team uh, looking at both medical communications and augmenting uh, existing medical affairs teams, as well as you know, providing a fully outsourced medical affairs team for uh, for small and emerging biotechs. Those are just a handful of the companies that uh, you know we track and and look at. Uh, what I would say is beyond that, uh, it's a very large group of of companies who are outsourced in the space. Um, a lot of them small consultancies that are very specialized on you know, one particular offering within the space. The three or four I had mentioned before, tending to build broader platforms where they've got a suite of commercialization services that they could offer to address bringing the, the product to market from start to finish. Well, this sounds like a market ripe for consolidation. So how are the, the buyers and the sellers coming together? Clearly a consolidation play uh, that you see with some of the, the larger platforms are, are acquiring small consultancies. Uh, we also see a fair amount of private equity investment in the space in some cases where they're stitching together three or four companies right out of the gate to try to build a platform. I think there's certainly room for more consolidation. Uh, I think just some of the interesting trends, observations that I think about, these are all inherently people businesses. They're professional services organizations. So looking for organizations that have been good at retaining their talent and you know, have a limited amount of churn, I think is really important in almost any of these specialty areas. It, it not dissimilar from investment banking or consulting, uh, you know, more, more traditional management consulting. These groups are all dependent on, you know, in a lot of cases, very highly qualified specialists who serve as consultants. Yeah. So as you step back and look out three to five years, we've got a dramatic expansion in these expensive complex drugs that potentially cure uh, debilitating diseases, particularly for different types of cancers and other sort of rare conditions. Um, You've got a fragmented industry uh, on the sort of the commercialization side outside of pharma. You've got growing numbers of drug development companies. What What do you think this all looks like in five years? And uh, maybe more importantly, will we feel better as a society that when we're uh, paying for uh, these types of therapies, we're, we're paying the right amount? I take an optimistic outlook here. I think that this general framework, I, I think, uh, should be positive for all of us as taxpayers, uh, as well as uh, consumers in the healthcare market. 
My hope is that it drives best-in-class therapies to market with a reimbursement framework um, that, that, that favors drugs that, that can really deliver meaningful improvement in patients' lives. That being said, I think you know, we're still very much in the early innings of, of kind of value-based uh, reimbursement around pharmaceutical products, as well as I think at a, in a unique time where uh, the ability to articulate the efficacy and effectiveness of your drug relative to others is becoming kind of more and more important. I, I think those are generally good trends that should favor you know, the consumer, the taxpayer. In terms of the outsourcers who are going to be successful in this framework, I do think that there's some value to having kind of a suite of services um, that could help take a small biotech that wants to commercialize their product and really take it you know, from start to finish. I also think groups who not only know how to analyze and interpret all the data from the real-world evidence uh, that's being gathered, but potentially groups who are capable of, of harvesting their own uh, data sets, um, building out their own data sets, could be really unique points of differentiation for commercialization companies. Uh, we worked with a company, Cain Brothers advised a company last year called Target Farm Solutions uh, in the real-world evidence space. Uh, they're tracking uh, kind of small populations of patients, four or 5,000 patients that are out uh, taking existing protocols for certain therapies. Uh, and, and trying to understand you know, what's most effective um, and not just pulling EHR data for those patients, but trying to get the really salient points of, of physician notes that could be uh, helpful in understanding you know, what's the most effective protocol out there. Um, mm-hmm. A company like that, coupled with kind of a larger commercialization platform, you could see as being you know, very effective. They're going to bring a unique data set uh, that's going to help their position, their clients' uh, therapy, um, and hopefully bring you know, really meaningful insights about what drugs are, are bringing better value to, to patients and to payers. Yeah. Well, that's, this is a good place to land, I think, John. But your last point uh, really aligns with something we believe very strongly at Foresight Health, which is liberated data will actually save lives, that if we can get data in the right form to the right people at the right time, they'll make better decisions. That applies in clinical treatments as, as well as, as pharmacological treatments. Uh, and that we, we are evolving toward a world where all of us can expect to get the right care at the right time, in the right place, at the right price, and get away from this kind of game playing that, that goes on right now to to maximize payment somewhat irrespective of outcomes. So I'll, I'll be optimistic with you. It's been been a fun conversation kind of going through uh, the very complex and evolving world of, of specialty uh, drug development, gene therapies, and so on. So, John, thanks very much. You too. Take care. We've covered the fascinating subject of bringing new, complex, and often very expensive drugs to market and how the marketplace is responding to that challenge. Thanks so much for your time, and even more importantly, for your insights. Kane Brothers is an investment bank focused exclusively on healthcare. The bankers at Kane stand apart because of their deep knowledge of the healthcare industry and their practical know-how when it comes to executing complex transactions in all healthcare sectors. These include healthcare services, medical technology, and life sciences. 
I'm your host, Dave Johnson. I'm a recovering investment banker who discovered late in my career I was always meant to be a journalist and maybe even a podcaster. I'm also the CEO of Foresight Health and the author of two books, the most recent of which is The Customer Revolution in Healthcare, Delivering Kinder, Smarter, Affordable Care for All. I love talking to other revolutionaries who are driving change in the healthcare industries. 